this is an incredible passage that begins with highlighting the generosity and graciousness of God and preparing a feast for his people on the mountain, referring to Mount Zion, there will be an incredible feast. It says the Lord of hosts will make this for all people. And this feast is not one of just the, the traps of what's left over. It's a feast of choice pieces, the fat, referring to the best of foods possible to eat. With the best drink possible to drink. Wines on the lees. Lees referring to the fermentation process of yeast um, that's left in the wine to add an enhanced flavor. And notice the parallelism here. A feast of choice pieces. A feast of wines on the lees. Of fat things full of marrow here intensifying it. Of well-refined wines on the lees. They're adding the, the marrow and then the well-refined part emphasizing how the Lord has prepared the best possible food for his people. And he himself is going to make this. He's the chef and a part of the, the process of serving his people that shows his great generosity. He's prepared the feast. And then he sends out, as Jesus told, the servants to invite all to come in. Many will make excuses, but others will come handicap and then eventually uh, go out from the city he tells the servants go out to the country roads those back lanes and byways far far out and call people to come in because the feast has already been prepared there's there's a master who's just filled with generosity and ready to give and here is this is the fulfillment of this parable here this is going to happen one day we will sit down and feast and the Lord will serve us. What a generous God we have. We don't deserve any of this. But he loves to show his graciousness toward us. But the passage then moves on. Beyond his generosity to show his power and his compassion. Because here in verse 7 it talks about on the same mountain. Something else is going to happen. That he is, he is going to show a He's going to bring about a, a display of his character in the in four things that happen. And these four things relate together. They overlap one another, but there's four specific things he will do in verse seven that is almost like an, a show after a dinner. We sit down and there's a show and the Lord puts it on and he says, I want to show you all my power and my compassion. And he we can imagine this beginning with an invitation. Come behold the works of the Lord. Come behold his mighty hand that restores and his compassionate hand that heals. The first thing here that he does in verse 7 is he will destroy or swallow up on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. In ancient times, covering or wrapping the head or the face was one of the signs of mourning or humiliation. And we see this in several parts of scripture and other sources as well show us this. In Esther, the, the story talks of, of Haman and his humiliation after he leads Mordecai through the city and the streets uh, on the horse. It's quite a humorous part of the story. 
after that's all finished, it says he hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. We see this in David's life too in 2 Samuel 15. It says because, you remember, Absalom took over, uh, was taking over from his father and he's going to take over uh, Jerusalem and so David has to leave. And there's a whole group of people that leave in procession and they're weeping loudly. And David himself, he's ascending the Mount of Olives barefoot and his head covered. And all the people with him, they also covered their head. They're in a time of mourning and humiliation. And then later on, as Absalom was killed, and David's grieving for his son. It also mentions that David covers his head and covers his face. Here in Isaiah 25, we don't have a reference, though, to one person with a cloth on the head in mourning. It's a reference to a blanket spread over all people, a mourning cloth. It's one large blanket of sh sorrow and shame that's been cast over all peoples. It's spread over all the nations. And in the beginning, we know God made everything good, very good. But sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Because all sinned, Romans 5. So like a cloud of poisonous gas carried on the wind, sin has permeated and corrupted the whole earth. And it's corrupted the lives of all people. Because of sin, we live under this dark blanket of suffering and shame. But the day is coming in this prophecy, reminding us the day is coming when we will watch the Lord devour this blanket of sorrow and shame. He will destroy this covering, this veil. He will take it away and there will be no more devastating effects of sin. The second thing it mentions that he will do is he will swallow up death forever. Death is horrible. Death is the hideous and horrendous consequence of sin that we've ex we experience in this world. But in this day, the Lord's going to put an end to death. He's going to swallow it up forever. He won't merely suspend death. He will put a final end to death once and for all in a victorious display of his power. And this text you might recognize quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. Death is swallowed up in victory. This prophecy has already partially been fulfilled when our Savior Jesus Christ appeared and he abolished death. Jesus died to kill our death. And then he rose to life again to give us life. And in a little while, it'll finally be done for. Death will be destroyed completely, victoriously. There will be no more death. What a promise we have here. It goes on to speak more tenderly as we just see god's power in destroying death we now see his tender compassion in the next phrase in verse eight and the lord will wipe away tears from all faces what a god we have the same mighty hand who conquers and slaughters the monster of death here is reaching out with tender compassion to wipe the tears from all the faces of his people. 
He sympathizes with us in our weakness and our sorrows. And he dries up the last tears of sorrow that will ever trickle down our faces. And notice that it mentions all the faces. He will not miss one. Every face, every tear is wiped away by our Lord, our God, who is filled with compassion toward us. And then the fourth thing he will do, it says, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people, he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. He will take away our reproach. Jesus taught that the world would, would hate us because it hates him. And so persecution is a normal part of the Christian life. We know Paul said in in 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. And we who follow Christ are misunderstood or misrepresented. Sometimes we're marginalized or mocked. Other times we're maligned and even martyred. But the Lord knows all of these sufferings we have because we are his followers. And the day is coming when he who knows and feels our sufferings, the sufferings of his people, will take away the reproach from all the earth. There will not be a place that we can go and will face any of that anymore. So if all of these things, these marvelous things that God's going to do take place, what, what is our response? Verse 9, we see the response of God's people. And here are exclamations of worship and trust. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What is our response? God's people marvel at who God is. And the marveling in the heart leads to the marveling on the lips. This is our God. We will speak about how marvelous he is, and we will claim him as our own. This is our God. Yes, he is the one we've been waiting for. I've been longing for him. I've been seeking after him. And finally, I see him even more clearly than before. He's the savior. He's the one who will save me and rescue me from my sin. And all of its damaging effects in my life. This is the Lord. This is Yahweh. The God who has entered into a relationship with his people and covenant promises. And he's brought this relationship to me. I've been waiting for him. And now I finally come to him. And now I'm going to be glad and rejoice in his salvation forever. Here is what a, a praise that comes from the lips of God's people after seeing such a display of his power. How should this impact our praying today and, and from here on? We should pray for great things. Do you notice how many times in this passage we have the word all? Just in four verses, we have it five times. In verse six, all people. In verse seven, all people, all nations. Verse eight, all faces, all the earth. God has a great plan. And so let's pray for great numbers of people 
to be saved from all the nations. And then let's also pray with confidence. Let's not overlook the last phrase of verse 8. For the Lord has spoken. These are great, great statements that are given to us. But they're not words of a, of a dreamy poet who's thinking about a wonderful life in the future from her imagination. And these are not words either of a politician making empty promises of a bright future. These are the words of our sovereign Lord who has always kept his word and always will. These things that we're reading about will happen. We really will be joining in this feast of all people and we will we really will see a final to death and all of its effects. So may this prophecy and others like this inflame our prayers for revival and awakening until we hear the proclamation of Revelation 21. Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. These words are true and faithful. So let's pray with confidence. Amen.